So we're at that uh, stage of the retreat where we're um, fast moving to the finish line um, in, in, of the month of October. I don't know where it's gone. It's sort of, <laughs> you know. Um, such is the nature of time. There's always the illusion that there's a lot of it and then suddenly there isn't. And it's, you know, the moments that we can let the silence in or it comes in uninvited and we feel that dropping and uh, simplicity of being the grace of that outside of the struggle or perhaps even at the heart of the struggle is a a real sense of the sacred a real sense of the blessed which is very important to connect to in this Dharma practice that it just uh, doesn't become a methodology and a, a technique and a strategy and a There's somewhere to get to, to improve ourselves. Because, you know, there's a certain place where we're not going to really improve. (laughs) This is it, the whole messy kind of shtick that we're in. But there is that which is unfolding in its its own beauty and presence that... uh, we experience and taste and touch into. So in the next few days and as we uh, come to the point when we actually leave, uh, we're experiencing the forms of the retreat changing um, and the form of the retreat dissolving. And that's what forms do. They, they come and they go, they come together, conditioned by circumstance, by a whole gamut of mysterious causes and intentional causes that bring about a form and a manifestation. And uh, there's a container and a process and then that begins to dissolve and then it's gone. And another structure and context arises. Uh, So, but the practice remains, the practice and the refuge. So aligning ourselves in each moment, this is when we take the refuge, buddhang sarananga chami, dhammang sarananga chami, sangan sarananga chami, gachami, is always a present tense. It's always I go. It's not that I went or I will go or, you know, it happened once and that's it. It's this constant realigning with the Buddha, that Buddha, that knowing, that presence, awareness, discernment. Here and now, that which is reflecting on the Dhamma the Dharma of what is present, 
not just the Dharma of the texts, the Dharma of the right kind of um, perspective that we hold. This is, this is right, I'm right, and that teaching is not quite right or whatever. But the Dharma of the actuality of what's unfolding within our awareness. Sound, sight, smell, taste, touch, feeling, thought, construct, day, night, stories, lifetimes, generations, earth, planet, cosmos, insects, trees, birds, flowers, struggle, dukkha, non-dukkha, the whole range. It's the Dhamma unfolding that we contemplate. And the Sangha, that which enables, that in essence, which means the practice. We're here and supporting each other in this practice. We're aligning with the practice. How is it now? What's happening? Not how it should be, not how I want it to be. So that orientation is actually fundamentally natural and simple. We just forget to, to orientate in that way. Or we get caught up in other agendas around the practice. As the, the Buddha said in the simile of the, the Heartwood Sutta, when he reminded us why we're doing all of this, it's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> why would we do this, you know? It's not necessarily that easy most of the time. And, you know, it's like the analogy of looking at a, a, like a banyan tree, like going right to the heart, and then there's these layers. You know, we might settle for the outer layer, which is an analogy for just looking for gain, honor, and renown. That's, you know, that's one, that's one agenda that we can have in the Dhamma, a very seductive one, a very powerful one for us as, as humans. And being intoxicated with that, as the sutta says, one disparages others or has a hierarchy around that. Or maybe further going in, we uh, gain the, the barimi, the blessing of cultivating sila and ethics and becoming of good character. And that's good, you know, that's not, that's, but there's a subtle way that we can then also judge those that we to consider outside of that. You know, it's a stepping stone, but it's not the heart. Or we can develop, and we do develop, uh, samadhi, you know, focus, jhana, subtle states, meditative absorption. You know, which we've been focusing on some of that in, in the uh, retreat, but then thinking, you know, so particularly as we go out, well, my mind is unified, I'm gathered, but those others are distracted and dispersed. So, you know, there's this sort of denigration, subtle often, and slightly removed aloofness of us, our Buddhist persona. <laughs> Slight superiority. <laughs> if you've noticed, (laughs) that can sometimes suffuse the way that we filter the sense of other. 
So that's, that's, you know, these are the sort of pitfalls that can arise with these accomplishments. They are accomplishments in the Dharma, but they're still not the heart. Or they, you know, even knowledge and insight, you know, and, uh, and even psychic powers or awareness or intuitive, or, you know, intuitive revelation, which can also unfold. It's our natural inheritance, actually. It just gets... We get distracted and clouded. You know, having very, you know, very important insights and knowledge from that. But then we can also make a camp there. You know, I have the wisdom. And maybe you don't. So all of these places are, are, are good and wholesome outcomes. They all have shadows to them. But the Buddha said what he's really pointing to is the real heart of this practice is the unshakable deliverance of heart. This is, this is really the fruit, the unshakable deliverance of heart, the heart delivered from its confusions, from not understanding its own nature, from its misidentification with that which moves through the awareness. I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other, and dividing the world up into the 10,000 pieces. So that collapses through the, this uh, profound recognition of the undivided heart, the unshakable deliverance, the heart in touch with the world. It, there's a wobble, but there is that which isn't shaking. You know, as as uh, Kirisaru um, read from the piece from the Pali, or spoke from the party the other day, talking about uh, the calming of sankharas, the emptying of sankharas, and the, around papancha, all beings delight in papancha, but Buddhas never waver. This heart, this putho, we might feel like it's wavering, but in actuality, it's, it's mountain-like. This heart, Ajamahabua, one of the great Thai forest masters said, when dukkha has stopped, completely stopped, nothing remains. All that remains is an entirely pure awareness. It's the essential purity of jitta, mind-heart. If you want, you can call it nirvana, nibbana. Get very fixated on that word, <laughs> a special thing out there somewhere as you climbed up all the steps to get there. But that revealing and unfolding of the unshakable heart, the deep peace of it, is always available to be tasted. And calling it something is just another name as we've been um, exploring. So Ajahn Chah had a, another way of putting this. What is this fruit? Why are we practicing? He talked about, you know, first we, we hear the Dharma. You know, we, first we hear about it somewhere. We read about it. It comes to us and you know, someone talks about it. And then we, you know, we, um, we, we start to learn about it, study it, maybe. And uh, we start to practice it. But he said, really, where we are 
you know, what this practice is really about and what we're growing into is being Dharma, being Dharma. And he also said that's something quite difficult to reach. (laughs) So it's a, a fruit, again, of the practice. it's it's not just talking about Dhamma or studying about Dhamma, but that our being is Dharma. This is uh, the great masters when uh, they come into fruition, like Ajahn Chah. Um, That is what one's experiencing, is a being that is being Dhamma. And that's a very... um, rare unfolding, actually. But it's not impossible or out of our reach. We have a taste of that. We have an alignment with that. We have a recognition of this ground. Maybe you call it groundless ground, but the ground of this citta, this heart, that is already dhamma, and growing into that as a refuge, guide, shelter in the storm. This diamond-like mind, sometimes also the prajna, the diamond-like heart, indestructible, luminous, primordial awareness, here and now. It's nature's intuitive knowing, reflecting on the nature of things, knows this is how it is. You know, at first when we know things, as it said, in the, um, in the worldly way of contemplating, you know, we think what is impermanent is, is permanent. We take the impermanent to be more stable than it actually is. And we align our life around that. And then we constantly feel let down or disappointed in what we took to be more stable when it changes and it moves and it dissolves on us. So we, as human beings, we experience a lot of grief and sense of loss and displacement. That's you know, a strong theme for us because we mistake what is actually not ours and what's changing as something that we can sort of build a, a home on. And we mistake what is, uh, you know, from the worldly point of view, what we think of as uh, happiness is often involved in dukkha. We, we grasp things that we think will, will bring us what we want. Power, wealth, happiness, sensual experience, whatever. You know, there's nothing wrong with some of these things, but the way we hold on to them and think that we'll extract from that essential happiness, actually what we're linking with is often connecting with that which will bring us a sense of struggle and dukkha. or what we take to, to be a self of who I am is actually when, is not really who we are. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm doing well, I'm doing great, I'm hopeless case, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm this kind of person, that kind of person. We have all these, you know, roles and views and ideas, a whole kind of litany of them, so thick, can't see through them. We position ourselves, and a lot of them are quite conditioned. I'm male, I'm female, I'm 
white, I'm black, I'm good, I'm bad. And it's not to say that these aren't very powerful distinctions. Certainly for the world, they're powerful distinctions and lots generated around how we discern and distinguish and make marks about who we are and who the others are. But actually this isn't, you know, this isn't on investigation a solid basis. And we realize this, you can't really define the self, not self. So in the wisdom, you know, as we start to contemplate the Dhamma, then we start to realize what we took as permanent is impermanent. What we took as happiness has often dukkha. What we took as, as self is actually ephemeral, can't really land there. But then in this deeper prajna heart, you know, the, 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 the transcendent prajna knowledge, as we've also been contemplating on this retreat, you can't really say it's impermanent or permanent. You can't really say that it's suffering or non-suffering. You can't really say it's self or non-self. You know, they both, you can't really say it's empty or, 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 or form. You can't really say that it's here or there, this or that. Because you realize any position that one takes is partial. That within the self is the non-self. Within the dukkha is the non-dukkha. Within the permanent is already the impermanent. It's just the way we categorize things and make distinctions. But in reality, that's not actually what's happening. So really, contemplating in that way the, the relinquishment of distinctions, the relinquishing of the, of the mind that's forever addicted to naming and categorizing and dividing up the world into the 10,000 things and finding a position somewhere in that, the relinquishing of that, or just actually not even relinquishing it, being confronted with an overwhelming, destabilized world, the world we now live in, dismembering world at speed. We, we feel very shaken, we can't find a ground. We don't know where that ground is. And we're trying to find a ground in places and, and roles and ideas and views and situations and positions that uh, no longer really hold. So it's really vital, this inquiry is really vital, where, how, you know, turning back the mind into its own awareness, its own presence, into its own refuge, knowing the refuge as a lived being dharma orientation, which is actually really another way of saying an utter simplicity. Everything else is pretty complex. It's about saying that actually awakening or being present, being Dharma is a state. It's not a state exactly, but it's being utterly simple. It's not saying that's not profound or doesn't allow complexity or doesn't have discernment, but the simplicity of not having to know everything, the simplicity of being willing not to know, to be open and just to reflect and allowing the knowing to come from a very different place in our being, from this intelligence of the jitta, of the heart, the natural, deep intelligence connected with the dharma. 
And that's something very different. That's why when you meet a master that's fully embodied that, like a master Shunwa, master Wao, you read about them, they don't take positions. They're fluid. You don't know quite how they're going to respond. Maybe they're going to laugh. Maybe they're going to be fierce. I remember when I first met Ajahn Chah, he was very um, jovial. He had a lot of power. You know, it was, it was like going up into a, it was almost like going up into a sort of like a wilderness, like a wild, you know, he, was, well, he wasn't exactly like a wild animal, but that sort of sense when you're in the, you're in the wild and you see something like, <gasps> you know, it's uh, when you're in the, in South Africa, or you go into the, the bush and you see a rhino for the first time, an elephant, <gasps> you know, it's, it's something not in your sphere. It's not categorized. It's not in your control. Yeah, and it's a bit like that. For me, it was a bit like that meeting Ajahn Chah. It was a bit. Like <laughs> but he was. He was. But he. He was very direct, very real, very through the layers. He wasn't. He. He. He didn't need you. You know. That's also was. He didn't need anything from you. He wasn't trying to please you. He wasn't trying to subtly manipulate or get something or extract something. There's very rare to meet human beings like that. that aren't in some sort of strategic, massaging little thing that we do. Um, so, you know, he was very free in that way. And, and quite, uh, a, you know, like a magnet. He was quite attractive, actually. Even though he was kind of pretty. I mean, sometimes you'd sort of, he looked like a bit like a frog. He's like dumpy and... <laughs> But it was like extremely his persona, his, his energy. Uh, so I was like uh, an iron filing to a magnet, you know, just like, you know, how can I get to Thailand? How can I track this being down? And, uh, you know, um, first of all, I met him in England. And, you know, at first he was, he was, he was, had, had a lot of humor, warmth. And then one day I said to my friend, a, a really dear friend, Dharma friend, I said, listen, there's this incredible master and um, I want you to meet, I want you to come meet him. And so I sort of dragged her to this place. It was a, a retreat center outside of Oxford in the UK where Master, well, master um, uh, sorry, uh, Ajahn Chah was staying. And um, he was in his kuti, his little hut, and I and my friend and I we sort of went up to his hut and just knocked on the door, bam, 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 which you don't do, you know. I, I now know about etiquette and the whole thing, but I didn't know anything in those days, you know. It's just like, you know, bam, bam, bam on the door, and he opened the door, and um, and there were a few monks in there, and I was like, <sighs> we're here, <laughs> you know, we're here to be enlightened, you know, and a sort of slightly naive kind of state. And he kind of looked not quite as jovial as he had looked before. But he invited, Grace invited us in. We sat in, in his kuti and sat down in front of him. And I, and I suddenly felt I'd walked in the, into the lion's den. I, I felt nervous. And, and he just sat there and, um, he, you know, said a few things. And then he, he said, well, um, what's your understanding of non-self? So I thought, oh yeah, that's easy. Honest to God, I did think that. So I started kind of going on about non-self. Meanwhile, my sense of self got so big in that room and I realized I was com- 
completely in trouble. I was just like this balloon blowing up, blowing up, blowing up, going red, 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 blowing up, blowing up, blowing up. And I couldn't stop. I didn't know how to stop. And as I was going more into myself, non-self, he was getting more and more empty. And the room was just sort of like... And uh, and I just sort of stared at the floor thinking, I hope this floor can just swallow me up completely. And I was like walking the plank, like on this edge, just like, if I say another word, I'm, you know, I'm just going to... F- so in the end, I just petered out and sat there. And he just got, he said something in Thai to the monk translating, and the monk refused to translate it. (laughs) So he said it again a bit more firmly, and then the monk said, he says you're very ignorant. And it was just like he got this pin and went, boom, and this whole me went, shh. And it felt like an honor, you know, it actually felt like having your bubble pricked by Ajahn Chah was a great honor. So then I was like... (laughs) And then he gave this beautiful Dharma talk. I mean, it, he was non, he was really that, you know. Um, and he, you know, and I, I was very, very blessed moment, but I was also very embarrassed, you know. So when my friend and I left the hut, we just started giggling. I think it was a reaction and we sort of giggled for hours um, <laughs> about this whole experience. So, But there is something about this, you know, this, you know, it's lovely to see this reflected, what we're growing into in a master. You know, it's it's lovely to, to read about or connect with that. But this is our potential too. This is, you know, this is not just out there. It's, it's that um, quote from the Dhammapada Kittisara said, the sage isn't out there. There is no sage out there. You know, at first it is, but, you know, we're awakening to that uh, within ourselves uh, through this this practices we've been doing you know essentially the simplicity of reorientating here being listening listening more deeply holding our attention to the heart it's a training of the mano vinyana the mind this manovinyana is the consciousness, the separative consciousness, which we use a lot and which is actually very powerful and very necessary for negotiating the complexity of the world. It goes out, it differentiates, names things, um, has language, discerns difference, um, and, it, and it distinguishes in a way that gives us a sense of the world being in this split into into all sorts of different categories. You know, it cuts up the seamless whole of reality into you and me, this and that, here and then, yesterday and tomorrow, and to all the different distinctions. So that mind, which we spend a lot of time contemplating, um, the training of that mind that goes out is, is very, um, it, gives a, it has a lot of energy in it. And, it has, and we believe it very much. We don't believe this heart. We don't trust this heart, you know, because it's too unfathomable. It's too untangible, seemingly, at first. We believe this very, this language narrative of the mind. 
that you know affirms our positions that generates you know the the sense of there is a separation so there's always this movement wanting to go close then being repelled and then you know the complex drama between me and it you know we have millennia of drama stories between me and it <laughs> i want it i don't want it i love you i hate you you know, we watch, you know, you, we, how many dramas have we lived and watched around that dynamic? How endless is it? That samsara. So the training of that, you know, the bringing of that attention that goes out, the training of that manovinyana, allowing that mind to come back and contemplate the heart. This is another way of talking about mindfulness. Bringing that mind back so it contemplates the body and the heart unifies, finds a ground, finds belonging in awareness, in this heart of presence. This is why when the Buddha was asked, what is the ending of this flowing out, this this. constant flood of asava. This uh, is called the asavas, that, that flows out into views, into the sense of self, into the creations of the mind. So the asava literally means that which floods. A lot of what we've been looking at is the mind flowing out. It's always flowing out. And so when, was, when the Buddha was asked, how do we come to the end of that? And uh, the Buddha said it through mindfulness. Mindfulness is the, the flood stopper, that which stops the flood. Turning that mind back, turning the mind back into its own reality. Like I said, the elephant of enlightenment sleeps at the hearth but we wander around the world looking at it, looking for its tracks. <laughs> As Rajin Chah would say, how much more wandering? That's the first thing, one of the first things he said to me, have you had enough yet? Have you had enough experience yet? No, just a little bit more. <laughs> When's it enough? Yeah, so we, we need to ask ourselves that, I guess, a lot, because we're burning up this world um, we're consuming this world because we haven't had enough and we'll never get to the end of having enough once we're caught up in that dynamic. Yeah. We would have to have, I think, seven, six or seven planets now for us to all to have enough. We've only got one planet. Last time I looked. So this, this is critical, actually. This isn't just for us in our meditation retreat in our special environment, but to bring this, which we'll be doing, you know, as in some ways we hit the ground of our daily life. This is, an, you know, this is another practice. It's not outside our practice. I mean, this is the challenge of the practice to bring this heart, this unshakable heart, this mountain-like heart, this discerning present heart, this reflective heart, this undying heart, this luminous heart, this simply present, unknowing, 
unstrategizing heart, as refuge, as orientation, as innate, as our truest innate being, to bring that, not to just abandon that on the cushion for special times. After all, 99% of, okay, we're meditators, 90% of our life is not on the special cushion. So the heart, the, the you know, in the, when we talk of the, the bodhisattva, the bodhicitta, the brahma-vihara practice, it's really about this, this, this recognizing the innate nature of heart, but also bringing that heart into the relational field. And that's the challenge now, so bringing it allowing the, this natural luminosity and cultivating that. You know, when we first uh, begin practice, you know, it's very much about, you know, sometimes me, me wanting to get something, you know, that's all, and, you know, good things. And that's a good place to start. I want to be happier, healthier, um, you know, more connected, Maybe I want to be more, you know, more confident, more successful. Those aren't, those aren't bad things. Those, those can be very good, helpful things. Uh, but then the motivation has to deepen because inevitably when we take this path of awakening, we're going to meet our, the shadow, we're going to meet suffering. And if we just want the happy things, we, we're not going to stay for the deepening of the journey. So then we stay and we realize, oh yes, it's bigger than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> when I first started meditating, I, you know, I had such a naive, idealized notion of it. You know, just sit there on a, or when I first became a nun, you know, I'd sit there on a pink cloud and i just sort of float above it all, off to this nirvana place. And, you know, I didn't realize that I was actually putting myself into a, first of all, a spiritual sort of, um, work camp, which was really difficult. It really didn't take me long to realize I didn't like anyone mm-hmm. that I was living with and that I was going to live with them for years. And uh, secondly, that I didn't like myself very much. <laughs> and then my mind was, you know, really, it took me a long time to realize the problem wasn't ultimately every, everyone else in the monastery. It was really a lot about my own mind. I mean, the problem was also everyone else, but okay. <laughs> well, you know, but the real place to solve it was, you know, took me a while to figure that out. And it, I didn't really figure it out until I was pressed against the, the walls, metaphorically speaking. And I thought, and I realized at one, one particular juncture, either I was going to burn the monastery down or go to war or, or burn myself down or or ultimately figure out this mindfulness thing, you know, to be aware and to, to own the suffering and to start working with it mindfully. You know, but I didn't really, it wasn't an intellectual understanding. It was like, you do this or you die. <laughs> and, you know, that's why Jin Chah would say, you know, that the practice when you can't move anymore, that's when it really begins. Because you know, the mind is so slippery, it has so many strategies. And, you know, that's, in a certain way, that's happening to us on the planet. We've gotten to a place with this mind, this separative consciousness that is generated with 10,000 distinctions. 
and this completely, this manovinyana, this separative consciousness has profoundly, you know, for millennia, removed itself from the web of life, from the web of nature, from the sense of, sense of a collective belonging, highly individuated, highly in the sense of, uh, uh, you know, in a shadow way, in an isolated sense of self, divorced from belongings, very painful. And, you know, in the sort of strategies and structures of the mind where we, where the divine and the sacred is, is you know, out there in the heavens somewhere. That's a millennial story going on for millennia. It's not in the, it's not in nature, it's not in the body, it's not in the, in, in the forms. It's, in, it's out there in the ether. It's not through, it's through belief we believe in. It's not through direct experience. It's not through participatory, relational intimacy within the web of life. It's not through the, the, the means of, of kind of intuitive knowing through dreams and visions and meditative process or altered states or shamanic unfolding as in the ancient ways you know, that, that's, that, that has been fast and long removed from access. We're trying to gather that. So this, this separative consciousness that has strategies, that has hierarchies, you know, of, of this disembodied God of our projections over humans as an oppressive, usually judging thing. Or, you know, humans over, over nature and animals. Men over of of over women and white people over every people of color or whiteness. You know, it's not even. It's, you know, it's externally yes, it's in the systemic levels, but internalized as well. Yeah. These are these are very old old stories of, of Christian who were in this country over other religions or America and the West over the majority world. So these, these are systemic levels of, of also the self-structure. These are conditioned in for millennia. It's sort of a colonial extractive type of consciousness that has completely uh, covered the planet. You know, it's sort of brutalizing brutalizing the masculine, objectifying the feminine. <laughs> you know, and these are internalized shapes that, you know, when we just listening to us all and my own process and your processes these month, you know, we can see that the sense of self isn't just conditioned from family or internal narratives, but it's conditioned from these systemic structures that we live within at a very deep level. And so... This is, um, this is a long story, you know, and underneath all of that, as the Buddha pointed to, what fuels all of this? What's burning the world? Because the world now is literally burning in the, in the um, fire sermon, third sermon that he talked. The first sermon was the, um, the, um, The uh, um, teaching of the Four Noble Truths, turning of the wheel, the Dhammachaka Sutta, and then the Anattalakana Sutta, the second Sutta, is the teaching on the Anattalakana, the lack of um, self, 
within the lacana, within the signs of existence. Uh, first, one of the first tasks I was given as a nun was to have to learn that sutta off by heart and then chant it. I can't do that anymore, but at once. And then this third sutta, according to the canon, the Pali canon, was this fire sermon. All is burning, the mind is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fires of greed, hatred and delusion. So now that, you know, fuel these structures and these uh, systemic structures and in, in individualized structures and the individualized ego self out of relationship. And it's quite painful shapes that we're in, isolated, and then sort of trying to hold up its power, huge power. This mano vinyana mind has now got huge power. The technological world, the industrialized world, the abstractions from nature, the, 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 the kind of um, the view of control over everything. We've done it. Here we are. <laughs> and we are, you know, we know where we are. We know that everything now is burning. We know that we are sort of pushing ourselves to, we're in the middle of the sixth extinction, we're pushing ourselves to extinction. We, I think it's kind of crazy, you know, we talk about, oh, this being's extinct now, and this one, and we don't think, well, we're an animal too. <laughs> you think we're going to be, but that's the delusion and the arrogance of this mind. So this, you know, so the, the, the context that we're living in, the relational field that we're moving in, this is part of our practice now. We, we can't just live in a bubble. You know, we're in a collective field of, uh, of where everything is touching everything else and that this is part of our contemplation, not just in the, in the bodhicitta. When we begin to, we start with, you know, just wanting to practice for ourselves and then, you know, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go through suffering because I want to be liberated. So this premise of me and my liberation, and that's, that's very strong and it's a very necessary step. And then we, f- we finally figure out there isn't really an I to liberate or the I that's trying to be liberated is the very thing that's blocking them. <laughs> it kind of gets very Zen-like. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, the deepest bodhicitta, the deepest motivation is to realize we, we're not separate from it all, actually. We are it all. You know, this is it. You know, and this is where we are. And yes, there's beauty and there's courage and there's enormous, incredible shifts and unfoldings um, and quantum leaps happening of consciousness and of of the manifestation of a new world emerging, but it is definitely uh, a profound struggle. It's a profound struggle to birth that new world, to midwife it in the midst of a world that's being, so much that's being dismantled and destroyed. So when we contemplate, you know, I, you know this sort of decolonizing of our inner self as part of our awakening process coming out of these structures and hierarchies and recognizing that in this heart, it's coming out of that mano vinyana that separates things out and recognizing actually this heart doesn't separate things out. This heart is empathetic with, is aligned with, is 
wanting to protect, is wanting to further, it's not in competition with. In, the, in this heart is the Brahma Vihara, it's a metta, the softening around the hardness of the heart. The not perpetuating aversion, the allowing of what is, is the metta, is this the heart of compassion. The willingness to feel with, yes, it's hard to feel with the suffering of the world. It's intolerable, but we have to learn to tolerate the intolerable. That's our agenda now, our curriculum. Not to shy away. Yes, we retreat, we regroup. We don't, not always on the, you know, a good um, general's not always going to have his um, army on the front lines. You sometimes retreat, like we have done, but that's not a permanent position. But this heart, you know, it is indestructible. Actually, it can. It can tolerate it. It can be with the suffering. This is the compassion of resonating with, being willing to feel. For the sake of that which we feel with, which is suffering, will alch- it's an alchemical transformation into compassion. The compassion is already innate, but it arises to protect, to, to, to guard, to, to stand with those that are vulnerable. The mudita to actually not to have to always compete with every love, other living being and hold the power and power over everything. <laughs> the mudita to be able to see the beauty and the goodness and to promote that. I really want every being to do really well. How about that for a thought? Or well, then how can I kind of, you know, slam you down so that I can be on top of the pile? That's quite an evolutionary thought, actually, for human beings. You know, to see the goodness, to promote that, to align with that, to see the beauty. Not, it's not just suffering, there's also great beauty, great humor, great joy. Great beauty. Poignancy as well. So to be able to align with that and then equanimity, this heart that's able to know this is how it is. You know, it's, it's good and it's bad. It's, it's up and it's down. It's a full bank account and it's bankruptcy. <laughs> you know, it's uh, success and failure, praise and blame. This is how, the, how it goes, how it rolls. You know, so the heart that knows deeply this too will pass. It's the, the dance of the unfolding of the karma of it all. Just this much. So in many ways this practice, you know, it starts to change our vision, shifts our way of seeing when we practice from that bodhicitta heart, compassion heart's willing you know, as uh, Ajahn Sumedho said to me, when I got nervous about taking bodhisattva vows, oh God, I'm going to be here right down to the last blade of grass and I can't even stand the nun next to me for another minute. You know, what have I done? Me here forever. 
it's not that from the self, you know, it's not, that's an illusion, a delusion. Yeah, but this idea, just just the patience, can we just be with this much? Actually, that's all that's really ever asked of us. You know, the mind goes into the future and creates a big project. You know, a big enlightenment project and our big bodhisattva project. You know, it's pretty burdensome. And it never ends. You know, it's not going to end. You know, that's why the Buddha said there's no beginning, there's no end of, of ignorance. And we might not fix it, but what we, but in reality, you know, it's only just this much, just to be with this much. That's all the practice ever, just to apply moments of path activity. Magga hatakilesawa, that magga hatakilesawa, the path activity hatakilesa breaks up that which obstructs. And you can only do that in the moment, a moment of Brahma-Vahara, a moment of mindfulness, a moment of presence, a moment of being here. Upati, nupati, dhammatang, the fruit of that path activity arises according to the dhamma, unfolds according to the dharma. You know, it's organic, it's like the fruit ripening. It has its own, you know, some fruits ripen very quickly and some take time. And it's, you know, it's, it's ripening. We planted a lot of seeds in this retreat, beautiful seeds, profound seeds, seeds, wonderful to hear everyone's practice. Amazing, actually. A privilege. The depth, uh, the struggle, the clarity, um, all of it. Great, you know, seeds planted. The service that everyone's contributing to holding this space. And those seeds will ripen. You know, that's the Dhamma, that's reality. It's, you know, you can trust that. So in many ways, this changing the, the bodhicitta seeing is this, this um, someone, uh, Chris Crass, who wrote a book called Towards Collective Liberation, he wrote in a chapter going, going to places that scare me. My individual experience was often challenging. I grew up believing that I was a lone individual on a linear path with no past. History was a set of dates and events that, while interesting to learn, had little or no relationship to my life. I was just a person doing my own thing. Then I started to learn that being white, male, middle class, able-bodied, mostly heterosexual, and a citizen of the United States meant that I not only had privileges, but those privileges were rooted in history. I was part of social categories embedded and shaped by history. Part of being in these groups meant that, that, that there was a, something normal. I was normal. The standard by which all others was judged were judged, are judged. However, my images of just being my own person through the shifting of my understanding were now joined by images of slave ships, indigenous communities burnt to the ground, 
families destroyed, violence against women, and white ruling class men using white poor men to colonize peoples of color and the earth. You know, this, this old structures. So when this shift of seeing, not just seeing from the view of me and my journey and my tribe and my way of being, but being able to begin to see in a different way. You know, it's not only, he's talking about being in America and Eurocentric, but you know, this story of colonizing the earth is an old story. Many different cultures across the planet, many different tribes. Someone, a friend of mine who's a, is a priest and a Buddhist practitioner in South Africa, sent me a, a blog piece he did the other day. And he said, you know, what was interesting, that the first human, they found this human remains, they just found some human remains, early human, I know the first, you know, who knows the first, but early, early, millennia, millennia, millennia ago, hundreds and thousands of years ago, they found this, this, this uh, skeleton. And it took them a long time to piece together the skull. It was like in 52 pieces. But when they finally did, and they finally looked at what happened, they realized that, that this, this um, I think it was a man, had been murdered. Uh, and he was saying, isn't that interesting? That the <laughs> It's like the Cain and Abel story. This is an old story. This is an old story that we're all part of. You know, that we all contribute to, that we all have inherited. You know, so this is, you know, so to, so when we look through the bodhicitta lens, yes, we're looking from the place where everything is dissolves, it all merges back into the non-separate heart. But we're also looking at the stories. We also look deeper. We hear deeper. So this this path that we're on is really, in some ways, it's a path of the reclamation of the sacred within us, within the body, within the earth, within nature, the reclamation of this hijacked mind by the Mano Vijnana gone crazy, of its its innate clarity, of its innate resonance with life, with all beings. this earth, the reclamation of this earth and our tortured ecosystems. But, you know, where do we do that from? That's as we begin to contemplate as we're going out from our retreat to that what the practice that we're doing is not removed from applying a being dharma to the world that we're moving into the world that we're shaped by, the world that is us at some level. We're not going to fix it all, but we can fix it at this heart. And that's the place we fix it. And we don't know what we'll be called to be or how to respond. We already, many of us, in doing a lot, but this listening, this uh, this Kuan Yin practice we've been connecting with is about profound listening. It's a metaphor for this heart, Kuan Yin. It's a metaphor for this diamond-like 
indestructible, immovable, responsive, sensitive heart, jitta mind. There's a Kuan Yin enlightenment talked about the moment of awakening, the moment of Kuan Yin's awakening in the Shrangama Sutra, which is the ground text for the Zen school. Talks about the moment of enlightenment, realizing and being uh, open to realizing that that the, that her, his mind, Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara's mind, was unified with all the Buddhas, but was also unified with all living beings. This is talking about the reality of what it, the awakened heart is already, unified already with the lineage of the Buddhas, of the awakened ones, the ancestors, of the protectors, of the devas, of the guardians, unified with all living beings. And so we're listening into that heart, the listening deeply, Kuan Yin practice, the response will be informed by that deeper intelligence that's receiving a receptive to our rightful place within this universe, aligned within the cosmos, aligned with the earth, aligned with all, that's, all that is, seen and unseen, a receptacle, being Dharma. And yet essentially very simple, essentially returning again and again just this much to that which is present, simple, here, vulnerable maybe, because being open is a state of vulnerability, but also unwobbling, wobbling, but also unwobbling, immovable, present, rooted, returning to our own ground, his heart returning to its own ground. And there is our refuge, our shelter, our abiding for the storm. So I offer these thoughts of our contemplation.
May we invite all beings into our collective field at this time, receiving the blessings of our practice. See many blessings generated from the collective dedication to the way of awakening. May these blessings touch beings present, family members here and beyond, passed over, ancestors, the human realm, the animal realm, all the different kingdoms, queendoms, living beings, this earth, the earth spirits, the protectors, the Dhamma protectors. Being in communion, we share the blessings of our practice. May there be peace, may there be healing, and may there be freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.